Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. What is up? How Learning is on is Ivan Lathan Jr. And it's me, Rachel Lynn Lindsay. Super Bowl. You excited? It's time for the game. Are you excited, though? I mean... It's time for the weekend. I'm surprised that more people I know aren't going to Vegas. A lot of people didn't go. It's in Vegas. Super Bowl's in Vegas. Nobody... People are going to Vegas. Yeah, people are not going to Vegas. I'm going today. You're going to Vegas today? I flight to 3.30. And then you're coming back? Yeah. I don't go to the game. I've been doing this for six years. It's a six-year tradition. It's work and play. Just to go to Super Bowl and hang around and all that stuff? It's work and play. What's your feeling on the new Cameron song? Haven't heard it. Cam spitting. Donnie, have you heard it? I saw you posted something, but I haven't heard it. No, I haven't heard it either. Y'all don't like, you know, you know what? Y'all don't like rap like that here on the high. No, I don't listen to contemporary music like that, to be honest. I don't like, listen I don't to Donnie? Older stuff. I like, kind of uh, do too. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not, I'm way out of the loop. So tell me about it. <laughs> have you guys ever considered, what it's like doing a podcast with people who it's on pop culture with people who don't watch anything, listen this to anything. This is not a pop culture necessarily <laughs> podcast, though. This is the second episode he's done that in a week. I'm just... This is a pop culture podcast. Just, it's not a movie podcast. It's not a movie podcast. You, you say you what? It's a pop culture podcast. I think I watch a lot of stuff. Have you it's seen Mr. and Mrs. Music. Smith with Donald Glover? No, I, and that's a choice. I, yeah, exactly. And it's, the show is actually good. <laughs> it's I've a choice, good right, Donnie? Yeah, I, I chose not that to show watch. is I good, it, man. I was like, nah, Let's I'm talk good. About this. What, wait, wait. <laughs> Donnie? I don't know if you can see us. Let's talk about this big old bottle you just put oh, on. I got to drink marked. the water. What is who explain this to me? Because where are you? There, there's a line. There's a day of how you should be drinking this water. I, I've never seen anything like this before. I kind of like it. You gotta get enough water. Well, how much is that? This is a gallon of water. Okay, and you're you're. Already past 5 p.m. where you should be. This but is very good. I only started it off with this much today. It's still, you're still past where you should be. I like this. Send me that link. I want this. I'm not going to walk around with this, though, so maybe not. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, 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 I can't see you lugging a big water thing around like that. Well, I can't see most people lugging that around. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have any, but you know what the difference between me and you is? I don't have any concept of personal style. But look how stylish you are today. You think I'm stylish today? Yeah, you look like a French racial of petty. You have it's giving the, like a Lord Farquhar kind of Farquhar kind of thing. Exactly. See? What see? Look, you you know stuff. Shrek. Disney. Shrek Wait, that's not Disney. Shrek is DreamWorks. DreamWorks. Yeah, but still though, it's the whole era. Because it's an era uh of stuff. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. The Super Bowl is going down. Chiefs, 49ers. And Taylor. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift made the Super Bowl in her first year. Um, 
what, who do you want to win the game? Uh, the Niners. The and that's shocking for me to say, because I obviously always root against the Niners because of our history or their history, our history, whatever, mm-hmm. with the Cowboys. So I'm usually anti-Niners. But this year with the Chiefs, and everything that I have to endure that comes with the Chiefs these day, Chiefs these days, I'm going for the Niners. Okay, so let's let's. This is a call it out podcast. Is what we do here. You want the Chiefs to lose specifically because of Taylor Swift? No, it's and and, and like I have to be so clear in this. It's not even just Taylor. When is the last time we've seen Jason Kelsey all over our screens like this? Even, Jason Kelsey, even the when the and his wife. Mm-hmm. And his kids. It's the whole package with it. The mom, Jason. I was walking back. I was at the grocery store, and I think they're on the cover of People magazine it is. Jason mm-hmm. and Travis. It's like Jason's been doing his thing for years, as has Travis. We, he's never received this much attention. So it's just everything. I cannot look at my social media, turn on my TV, without the storyline being this. I'm so glad I'm not working for Extra and having to cover it because this is an entertainment magazine show's dream. All their questions, everything has to do with Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. And that will only continue if they win. Somebody asked Travis the other day at the, at the what do you call it? I can't think of it now. Um, media Day. Media Day. They asked him, who's getting a, getting a ring first? Taylor or you? It's like, guys. So let me ask you this. <laughs> guys. If they win, the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl. I'm kicking y'all all out of the house. Kicking us all out of the house. Well, and I'm going to put on win, Shameless. They could win. If they win, do you think that Travis Kelsey will propose to Taylor Swift on the field? No. How do you know? I don't know. But like... First off, I, I've always hated those kind of proposals. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I've never, I used to be like, crazy enough, I said, I, said, I never want to be proposed to in public. I never want, I want it to be private, intimate, and then look what I did. Yeah, you know, I'm about to say you <laughs> but, fucked it up. Like you, you, I, I just over my gut. Mm-hmm. But I, I just have never been a fan of that. It's just, it takes away from the moment when it's just supposed to be about the two of you. Mm-hmm. To me, it would be really tacky if he did, but he's not, I just, he's not going to do that. Maybe at the parade. There were so many people who had issue with my Taylor Swift take about the Grammys. Oh, about the Grammys and how they've deemed her the best because she's made history. So I'm going to invite, we were supposed to have somebody on today, but we have Boaz Yakin on today, the director of Once Again for the Very First Time. Uh, our movie that's premiering at the Pan-African Film Festival next week. Uh, Also, the esteemed director of Remember the Titans, the writer of Fresh, the writer of Now You See Me, the writer of The Heart of They They Fall. Fall. So many different movies that you've seen. Um, He's going to be joining us a little bit later. So the show is a little bit packed today. I'm still hoping to have someone to explain to me why I'm wrong on the Taylor Swift take. So the guest believes you're wrong as well. Yes. There were many people who believed I was wrong. I feel like my take is unassailable, though. I'll be honest with you. And so, because my take is not, this, this This is what I'll say. My take is not to say that Taylor Swift is better than those people. I know that. My take is to say this. People were talking about, oh, you have to know how the system works. You have to know how this works. I Fine, I get it. All of that stuff. I'm saying, if you went, right now, Tom Brady has seven, seven. Super Bowls, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you have a 15-year NFL career and you win eight Super Bowls. And every other year, you miss the playoffs, right? You suck every other year. Yeah. 
There's still some calculus that you figured out on how to become the greatest Super Bowl quarterback of all time. Even if you're playing in a league that's watered down. Right now, you might say that the NBA is not as tough of a league as it is, as it was, should I say, in the 80s and the 90s. Right now, if someone wins seven NBA championships or if someone wins 12 NBA championships, if they beat Jordan or if they beat uh, Bill Russell, you still got to say there's something that they figured out commiserate to their competition on how to win um, these championships. In this particular situation, her having four of them and Midnight's being objectively, to me, one of the worst albums she's put out. <laughs> it's still good. Taylor Swift is a great artist, right? So it's still good. There's something that she's figured out and there's something that they've acquiesced to. They've acquiesced to her being the greatest maker of albums. I don't see what's controversial about saying that. No, I, I, I understood exactly what you were saying. It's not that you believe that, but you're saying if the standard if the, to, is to win a Grammy and she's winning it for this, what are they saying about her? I understand that. Like, what does that mean? It's just like when you debate LeBron or Jordan, people always go to the rings in the championship. Like, it means something. It stands for something. It represents that. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is true, right? Because it is still subjective. Who's the best? So I think that if you're, but if you're going to measure it and not, and not be subjective, then you go by the awards or what this means. So yeah, I understood what you said. I, I don't think you were saying she was the best, which is why I accepted it. But T-Swifty doggy. Um, it was just hard to hear you list off all those people. That was a troll. <laughs> and I know. I think that's what it was. And then yeah. you see the video, it like puts them all. I didn't do that. Donnie so did that. Donnie did that. And it's like, it has many. It's like, ooh, yeah. not him. Ooh, not her. Not them. Yeah. You know? That was a troll. Like, you know, Nirvana didn't even put out four albums. So there's no way that they, you know, anyway. Um, so the most important part of the Super Bowl is, of course, Usher. <laughs> Question to everybody on the podcast, Donnie, everyone. What? Will Usher start the show with? What's gonna be the first song? Uh, I think you remind me. Is that the first one? I feel like no, his earliest. It's not hit. gonna be that. I think it's gonna be "You Make Me Wanna." You make me wanna. Is that before you remind me? I yeah. feel like it's gonna yeah. be his his first one. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Hold on for a second. See, Donnie just asked. This is what I'm talking about. I'm gonna put y'all through pop culture school. Donnie just asked if you remind me. Yeah, Donnie, was, that was that was, was a little the easier one. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> fucking come on. But I don't think he's gonna start with a, a song like that. I don't okay. think he's gonna play a full song. I think it's gonna be like snippet. Like yeah, like he's gonna come up and be like, think of a song that has like a boom, like caught up, boom, boom, like boom, boom, and, and then he gets like, into it. Caught up, boom, boom. boom. And then it's like, brother, ah, ah. Yo, doing my way, get my thing for you. Like, can't you see him sliding across in the my stage? career? Boom, boom. And mm. then it's just like, you know, like it changes mm. into, you make me want to. I think it's going to be more of that. Not the most popular, just it's got to be. I'm trying to think of the concert in my head. Um, So You Remind Me actually would be like a fucking perfect song for him to start with because it would all, it would, he would come Too out slow. there. But you remind me, it's almost a song like, enough. hey, you remind me. like dun, 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 No, dun, not powerful dun. enough. It's got to be boom. It doesn't have to start with the boom, does it? Or does it? Maybe I it does. I think so. Oh, wait. Ashley just sent this video. What's the video? Oh, my 
That's a good one too. Oh my God, it's a good one. Bro, please don't start the show with oh my. She's doing what I'm doing. Okay. Okay, I okay, got to turn her off. Yeah. But like, that's what she means. Oh my, my she, God. Don't start with oh my God. I, I know I know that <laughs> I have to hear. It, but that's it. That's I, it. I, I know that I have more. to hear oh my God. I know that I'm going to have to hear oh my God, but don't start but with But the oh my snippet, God. just like a oh my. It was like, wow, God, boom. I fucking hate that record. I don't, I'm, so I'm not a fan of it either, but yeah. that's it. That's all we get. Yeah. Boom. Like, and then oh, when he hits when he hits the break, mm-hmm. like it slows it down a little bit, it's gonna be love in the in this club. Songs that we know he'll do for sure. Yeah, we'll be done for sure. That could start, we could start off with that. You're gonna start with yeah? Just think about it. Don't you have to build just to yeah? It. It's just the yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, you need silence. More, but you need silence. More, Everybody starts screaming. But you need more, but you need more of that record than that. You cannot do that record. Yeah, yeah. Y- yeah, yeah, I think I think that Slice. yeah is Usher's signature song. I I can I can see that. I think because if if you were gonna talk Actually, about that'd be the best one. If you if you're gonna talk about Usher's signature song, what's Usher's signature song? I think when it's all said and done. When it's all said and done, I mean, Usher has records. Usher has You Remind Me. Usher has You Don't Have to Call. That's my favorite Ooh, Usher song ever. That's a good one, too. Usher has You Don't Have to Call. Usher has Burn. Usher has Confessions, right? Usher has a lot. Usher, You're getting me so excited Usher right now. Usher has Confessions. Usher has a lot. Of, <laughs> to me, I think Yeah is Usher's signature no, song. Just think about it. He's like, the, everybody goes, the lights go out. And then all you hear is, yeah, yeah. Now nah, he's yeah. gotta do the whole and, record. And, like across just like in different places, like they 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 give it like left, right, middle, boom, it just stops. Mm. Everybody screams, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And then Ludacris starts rapping. Well, I'm so ridiculous. Ridiculous. That song was so. See, when we do start talking about pop culture, he don't want to give us credit, Donnie. I'm expecting I'm, you to know, yeah, it's the biggest <laughs> record of the decade. Look, what like um, I'll say this. Ludacris is like who's giving us more joy than Ludacris? Ludacris is a joyful ass rapper. <laughs> I never thought of it. Ludacris that way. is a joyful ass rapper. You know what? Because even when the raps were nasty, mm-hmm. it still was joyful. Think about think about that first record. Use a hoe. Oh! <laughs> Ludacris <laughs> is the He's not the goat. He's the jolt. The, <laughs> the greatest joyful of all time. He's the most joyful rapper of all time. Think of who are the joyful rappers. Who would I'm be really thinking about this? Who would be in the rappers in the joyful rapper Hall of Fame? Will Smith? For sure. Ludacris. Just joyful. We're having a great time. And these guys have ridiculous, because Ludacris has ridiculous skill as well. I'm trying to think. Is Chance a happy rapper? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Chance is definitely in the Joyful Rapper Hall of Fame. Just joyful. It's just, hey, this guy, you just you see this guy, you know you're about to have a good time with the raps. It's fun. It's fun time with these guys. I'm trying to think. Donnie, help us out if you have any thoughts. Biz Marquee comes to mind, I feel like. Biz Marquee. Lil, Lil John. Lil John. Lil John. What? 
Little John, just the most joy. Isn't there something to be said for Nelly? Nelly. Kinda, Nelly. Nelly. Pitbull. Uh. <laughs> I fuck with Pitbull. I'm just, uh, Mr. 305. At the, uh, uh, maybe. But see, but see, here's the thing, though. This is why I'm saying, though. The re- the, this is the only reason why I wouldn't say Pitbull. Because you could go Pitbull and then you're going to go Flowrider, right? You're going to go look at these guys. Oh, but I don't know. If, is he rap? That's what Pitbull I'm saying. Pitbull is. Nah, Pitbull's rapping. I don't know. Johnny? Pitbull, they're both Ashley? rapping, but that's pop music, though. But I don't know if Flo, I don't consider Flowrider rapping, really. I don't know that why. That nigga be rapping his ass off. I don't know why. But it's just. I mean, but it's just, it's pop, though. It hits different. It's pop, but Ludacris is. Firmly, firmly, yeah. firmly hip hop. But don't, and, but don't get me wrong about Pitbull. I don't want to make it seem like it. I'm taking shots at Pitbull. Pitbull been rapping for a long time. Pitbull yeah. started rapping, rapping, but it was a little bit more poppy after the end. But Ludacris was always, and I mean, I'm talking about crazy bars too. The most, I think Ludacris is the greatest, the drought, greatest joyful rapper of all time. He is the greatest rapper of joy ever. You know what it was, too? The videos went along with the joy. Yeah. They were so animated. You just know when you see Ludacris, it's, ha- it's time to have a good time. It's just time to have a good time. Ludacris pop out. Which goes... One minute, man. Which, which just goes right back to why this is the song they should start off with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I swear to God, I'm going to lose my shit if at the house that's how it starts off. I do the whole record, though. So you can't do snippets of it. I say, yeah. He's got such a... His his catalog is so thick, he's got to do Jesus Christ. Jesus. Shall we move on to Drake? His catalog is so (laughs) thick. Oh, wow. Um, So... I think he's gonna start off with something that kind of eases you into the performance. I think That's he's whack. gonna. I think he's gonna start off with you remind me. That's not so not, whack. not you remind me. I think he's gonna start off with you make me wanna. I think it's gonna. Dun, dun, you dun, make me wanna. Dun, fine. You make me wanna. Dun, dun. Okay, that's yours. Mine's yeah. Ashley, Donnie, what are your predictions? Which song? I think he starts off with "Oh My God" and closes with "Yeah." I was thinking "Love in the Club." Start love a little bit like that. Yeah. I love love. In he the will club. probably he will probably uh, he'll probably close with yeah. Will he bring out other people? Jermaine Dupree will definitely be there. You think so? Yeah. Hmm. If he would really shut the house down, if he did Lovers and Friends. I, 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 ooh. <laughs> hey, yeah, he's got to have a slow song on there. And everybody like that right now that's listening to this, go to Brian Michael Cox's Instagram and demand that B Cox tell you the story of why there was never a video for Lovers and Friends. Whose fault is it? I'm not, t- I'm not, you, you can't hear it from me. Gotta hear it from B. Cox. It's never too late. You're not gonna hear it from me. Gotta hear it from B. Cox. All right. Uh, gotta get into the show. Oh, real quick. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. Should we talk about Brock, the, the Georgia quarterback, buying a no, Lamborghini? No, it's out of control. They need to regulate it. I don't know that they do. Why can't this? So just see, Carson Beck bought a $300,000 Lamborghini. He's the quarterback of Georgia. Why is it out of control that he bought the Lamborghini? It's not that it's, that as a one-off isn't, but just in general, I think that if you're really looking at college sports as amateur, you can't keep going down the road that we're going. I mean, there's cases right now in court where one, one court has deemed them employees. 
So if they become employees, that means they can unionize. So imagine that you gotta you gotta meet, sit down with the union of the women's basketball team and the bas and the men's basketball team and football and ten all these different things. It's it's gotta have some sort of regulation because that's where it's headed. Because the way they're getting paid now. Mm-hmm. And the way things are happening with negotiating and how they're getting in there, they're, they're employees. They're getting their employees. There's an argument to be made there. Would you, you rather say? them be employees or slaves? You're not listening to me. I said regulation. I didn't say cut it off. I have always been for athletes getting paid. Well, why wouldn't why, why would them unionizing be, in a, be a bad thing? Why it's going to take away from college sports. Like, oh, I don't give a fuck about that. Well, see, and that was one of the things that I had if we were going to talk about this. I love college. I, I love college sports. I love LSU football, but in there's a movie, a great movie called uh, um, "Searching for Bobby Fisher," and Joe Montagna is talking to Joan Allen, and Joan Allen and Joe Montagna is because uh, Ben Kingsley is there too. He's their son's chess teacher, and the son likes to go to Washington Square Park in New York and play chess. But he tells him, he says, "Look." The way they play in Washington Square Park is wholly different than the tournament chess that we're playing. Okay. They take gambles. They play fast. They do all of that stuff. It's not good for it. Um, and then Joe Montana goes, okay, we'll stop him from playing there so much. Joan Allen comes back and she goes, it would kill him not to play in the park. And then Ben Kingsley goes, it just makes my do- job tougher. And she goes, your job's tougher then. That's the way I look at this. So, if them using them unionizing, it just makes college sports tougher. College sports is tougher. I believe then. in I believe in unions and all of that. I'm Doesn't not. I'm not. Like I'm. I'm in the union. Yeah. I believe. I believe in unions. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is, is and you brought up an interesting point, which is something I was thinking as a viewer. Do we care? Right? Do you care? that a quarterback is driving a $300,000 car? Do you care that this person chose this school because they offered them more money or they have better opportunities or you're a Bryce Young who like made a million dollars? Do you care about that kind of stuff? I don't know if they do. I don't even know if they're aware. I bet most people have no idea that this dude is driving a $300,000 car. They just want to see a good quarterback on their team or their favorite team play. The question is, if it gets to the point where they're concerned where there are unequal conferences or uh, the playing field's not fair, that's when I think that that the viewer will start to be affected by what's happening in NIL. Mm. That's all I'm saying. I think it's, it. and if it's truly an amateur sport, and if you care about that, right? Like in in law school, we had one class that was dedicated to amateur. Mm -hmm. And then another that was to professional. It just made, when I think about how we studied this, it's like it totally erases so much that like sports has been built on. What college football was built on. Now, nobody predicted that it was going to be become this billion dollar business, which is why now athletes need to be paid for their name, image, and likeness. But since when do we do anything without there being some sort of rules in place? Like the rules are for a reason. I'm not saying they shouldn't get paid. I'm just saying, hey, they just made it the wild, wild west. So this is what I'm saying. Number one, in terms of big-time college athletes choosing schools based upon the resources that were coming back to them, it was already like that. Fully aware. Okay. But not like this. Now, I'm not talking about even money under the table. I'm talking about the reason why you go 
to Ohio State, Alabama, LSU, Texas. Texas has their own cable network. Not anymore. Used to. So Wait, has that been announced? Uh, Longhorn Network. I don't know if it's going. You, are you breaking news? <laughs> Wait, don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's... Donnie, look that up. Okay. If it hasn't been, t- take it out. Um, so, even when stuff like that was happening, that was such a clear advantage. Such a clear advantage between a school that doesn't have that and a school that does have that. If you have your own network, that means you're going to be featured on practice films yeah. and they're going to be documentaries and your personal brand is worth a lot more. So what I'm saying is these advantages were already inherent to me um, to NCAA football particular, in particular because certain conferences, certain schools have deeper pockets and bigger football traditions. So that was always the thing. The only people who weren't able to participate in the inequality that existed were the athletes. The schools were making so much money. I agree. And, and so right now, LSU, I, I'm from South Baton Rouge, Louisiana where LSU is. She was in South Baton Rouge. Some would say that everything south of LSU is South Baton Rouge, whatever. Some say that everything south of downtown, whatever. Um, it, it, Mike the Tiger has a $5 million enclosure where he lives. <laughs> the Tiger! I love him. I say what's up to him every time I'm home. I go, shout out Mike. I wow. always like to visit my homies that's locked up. Okay. So I go say what's up to Mike, right? Mm-hmm. Comes out, hey, man, what's up? Ah, I growl like a tiger. This is what he does. He's like, ah, ah, I growl like a tiger. And then he goes back into his enclosure, right? Hey, man, what's popping? LSU has a $28 million locker room. I've talked about this before. And by the way, they deserve it. They deserve it. They drive a lot of economy to the state. It's one of the things that we take the most pride in in the state. They deserve it. But what I'm saying is, it is interesting to talk about amateurism in this multi-billion dollar endeavor that is college football. Sure. So I don't think that that comes into play. Well, no, I'm just saying when it started, it was amateur because they weren't making all this money. Now they are. So something needed to change. I agree with that. But where, but where does it stop? I just, I just see, I just think that there should be- I get it. Well, I'm saying to, to me, if they're, if, obviously I think that they're, there needs to be more structure in NIL because there are a lot of loopholes in NIL in terms of the way the collectors are able to, to, to get together and, 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 and raise funds and pay out. And I think the spirit of what NIL was supposed to be is perhaps uh, not being reflected in the reality of the way it's being um, applied. I, I agree with that. But in terms of the college players' access to money based upon their name, image, and likeness, you either have it or you don't. I, I'm for NIL, yeah. but also in regards to regulation, there's no federal re- regulation, mm-hmm. but states have different laws. Right. So there's certain ways that some people can benefit by being a part of this state than others. And maybe like there needs to be a uniform thing. So whether your school's in this state, you can compete more. It's just, there's a lot to be done. I don't, I'm glad I don't have any part of it. They got a new, they got a new president. So maybe we'll see what happens. It's time to take a break. On the other side, like the leak, we got to talk about Drake. Okay. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. You could be doing anything this week, right? You've got work, errands, friends, and a whole lot of fun in between. That's why the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. 
with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. All right. um, Drake is seemingly unbothered by an alleged leak of his cock. Are you sure the Instagram post? He's making fun of it. I guess it was Tuesday that it was leaked. A video of Drake. Uh, his, his dick was out. It's a nude of Drake that was leaked. Mm. Now, there are people that had seen this a long, long time ago and were wondering when it was going to make its way to the internet. Oh, really? Yeah. You added a TMZ? No, that's like years ago. Yes. I'm oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about like I heard people in the Twitter sphere that were saying there was a leak of Drake that had come out oh. months ago, months ago. Oh, okay. And so, um, and they were just wondering when it was going to hit the streets. And it did. And there was a lot of discussion about it. And Drake has seemingly taken this all in stride. It's unclear who leaked it right now. Okay, I was going to ask that. Rachel, your thoughts. I mean, and? <laughs> like, Drake's got a big dick. He's talked about it before in songs. Now you see it's him. There are a lot of people out here slinging like that. I just am not one. Okay, I'm not one who's moved by, if this video was sent to me, I'm not moved by that. Mm. And I actually talked to a lot of women about this video and just this topic in particular. Not, getting a picture or a video, it doesn't have the same effect on us as it, as it would on a guy. Like, sometimes I think guys send this for themselves, like, to make themselves feel better or because they they do, they are well-endowed, and so they and they just want other people to know, like, it makes them feel a certain way. But for most women that I talk to, I, I, I want to I talk to it in person. I want to see it in person. I don't want a video. I don't want the picture. Mm-hmm. You want to have a conversation with the dick is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah like that's the, that's a, that's gonna move me. But not like the picture of the dick. The dick. <laughs> what we can talk about it. The Just, picture. The picture of the dick. The dick pic is. It's not a powerful thing for for. And I would love to hear from the women, you know, who because I'm I'm speaking about on behalf of myself and other women that I've talked to. Mm-hmm. I, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm like, great, can't wait to see it. Mm-hmm. I just I, I don't need it. It did. It, it is a change. So nothing changed with you with Drake after seeing this? I didn't like the way he was posed in the video. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Just, I mean, have you seen it? Yes. Okay. I don't know if you were like, well, I don't want to see it. Like, just like the way, he, I don't, it's just, he seemed like, he, we couldn't see his face, right? Not just, really. Okay, because I was just making sure that I didn't imagine this. I yeah. felt like he was smiling at himself. Like he was giggly about the video. It just... Like, just the way his legs... I just... I just... The videos are not for me. Don't send me these pictures or videos. You're going to get so many dick pics now, it's going to be crazy. (laughs) Don't send me. I just... It's... 
it's a little corny to me. And I don't think. Oh, wow. And I don't think I'm just saying it because it's Drake and people have used that Mm -hmm. word with him. Just the whole thing about it. I was like, oh, Mm. I'm just not going to geek over somebody having a big dick. Yeah. Yeah. And it was long. Not all that big. Jesus Christ. Like, (laughs) Rachel, we, I, I never thought that we would get this type of. Dick breakdown on the well, podcast. I gotta from- talk about it. What am I supposed to say? It didn't move me and just leave it alone. I'm entertaining you here. So if it would have been a different type of dick, no, you I don't been okay like. With it. I don't know. It, it was. It. I. He's. He should be happy. Yeah. Let me not take away from him. He should be happy. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying. I'm just not moved by that. Interesting. I think that this was a very seminal moment. Okay. This was one of the biggest moments and cultural history for the LGBTQ plus community. This leak of Drake to me. Why? Because I saw more men debating, talking about, praising, shouting out, and endeavoring into conversation about Drake's dick than I've seen on anything involving a woman in a long time. What was what was what is there to debate? They there was just talk. There was talk. Both Adam and Aiden Ross said Drake has a missile. And then there was so much dick discourse on the timeline that this is a very important moment for discussions of sexual fluidity of breaking down stereotypes, of discussing things, you would have thought that fresh, fresh Meg the Stallion twerk videos had dropped. You would have thought that Meg and Chloe Bailey and Beyonce had went to Mykonos together and were all in... Th- the way this was discussed, the way that they approached... Drake's dick has to be liberating for a lot of people out there in society. Drake got his fans in a different type of situation. Drake got a different group of fans, man. And this is not me casting any aspersions on them or saying anything bad about them. These Drake fans is different. They like seeing his dick. It made them proud. They were proud of Drake's dick. They were like, look, I th- I feel like there were some old daddies out there. I feel like there was a oh, daddy. I feel like there was a couple of old daddies in this. They were happy. My goat got that dick. That my goat got the dick. Is that what people were saying? Niggas deep down were rooting for the dick. And this is a conversation we couldn't have had about them. We literally went from, is it okay? To acknowledge that a man is handsome. Like, literally, we went from, is it okay to say people who are objectively handsome, the Michael Ealy's of the world? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is it okay to, to say people, say that people are, it, we went from, is it okay to say that a man is handsome? To say, oh, that's a good looking brother. Is that okay? Is it okay to say that? And we jumped to, my goat got that dick. We went there literally months ago. There was a picture of Jalen Hurts that came out. 
Yes, we talked about this. Really? And I said to myself, God damn, every time, and this was, this was very, I was being vulnerable because I had had a good day the day before. And I'm like, God damn, man, you know, I'm actually a slightly handsome guy. Look at me. And then all of a sudden, the Jalen Hurts thing popped up. And I'm like, nah, you're not handsome. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That nigga's handsome. It, you it, are. It's another word. And so, and so I I said that, and everybody was like, hey, man, a little sus. Did they? Yeah, but I'm just saying, I get this, that's toxic, right? But what I'm telling you about is look at the progress. And people are looking at the progress. <laughs> we went from, yo, acknowledging that Jalen Hurts is a handsome guy to a two-day conversation about dick. And that's the pool that Drake has over his fan base. I saw this and I was like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, God damn, like, you know, people like, God, shit. I didn't know Drake had it like that, man. Drake is the meat messiah. Drake Y'all is the, uh, like, Drake, I'm telling you, Drake is the, <laughs> the, the, the he, he, like, I'm, I'm telling you, like, like, they're looking at Drake, they, they got all kinds of fucking different, the, the dick dictator, Drake. Like, it's all of this stuff has got coming out. I'm like, I'm looking, I'm like, yo, this is a big moment. This is a big moment for the discussion of the fluidity of sexuality because you motherfuckers loved talking about Drake's dick. His fans different. I'm telling you his fans is different. His fans is different. You know, it's, it's been other sex tapes that have come out with niggas in the sex tapes. That, but on Drake's level? What you mean on Drake's level? I'm, I I can't think of, at the moment, like, who's had a sex tape of... Um, not not a not a not a not a celebrity or leaked, right. on Drake's levels, but they have certainly been. Yeah, I'm saying like it's also because it's Drake. It's like getting. That's a, what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like I mean we got sexy red sex tape, but I'm trying to like who would be the equivalent the the woman equivalent to a Drake? Like imagine if you got that, people would be be talking about it for days. But see, what I'm saying is this though: different things come out. And women look at other women and they got, oh, she got them yams. Women say stuff. Women go like, I just want to touch her butt and play with her butt. Yeah, women love another woman's body. They like, do. They, lo- they love to talk about how beautiful a woman's women, body women is. Women like it. Women go, ooh. Yeah. Like, and they say, they say gay shit. They say like, oh, that Meg, Meg, Meg is twerking. It's like, oh, I want to put my face in there. Or, oh, okay, I want to grab know. the butt. You know, have you ever seen another woman's butt and wanted to grab it? Okay, so, but women say that they want to grab a butt. But I might look at it like, she's a beautiful butt. Right, and they want to they say it, right? It's like men, typically, because we've been socialized in such a future sure. way, you'll look at somebody and be like, God damn, you know, because you'll be like, whatever. But like, you don't be like, yo, this nigga got crazy shoulders. I want to be like, it's typically when you see it, it's not okay to say. You might think it, but it's not okay to say. That's gone. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Drake's dick ended that. Niggas was legitimately, I, I saw it on the timeline, legitimately, legitimately like, that's the kind of dick I wish I had. I've got to have that dick. Can you imagine being all of this and having that dick too? You got the money, the women, and you got I the I understand dick. that conversation. So what I'm saying is this. People are underscoring Drake. Drake broke the, he ripped the curtain off. It's over. It's, it's like, it's, it's over. Everybody joined together because what I saw, what I saw 
was a proliferation of penis watchers that I did not think was possible. Y'all niggas is lying. All y'all, like, uh, all y'all. We gotta move on. I'm just saying, y'all are lying. I see we y'all. We gotta move y'all on. Y'all acting like y'all lying. Hey, Listen, man, shout out. The reason the pictures Progress. and videos don't really do anything because we don't know what it does. Right? And it I'm really to, is. It but really, why would you assume the worst? It re- No, I'm not assuming the worst. I'm just saying it really is about the motion in the ocean. Like, that's really what it comes down to. Right? Like, you can have, you can be blessed and not know what to do with that. You got to have some As dick. you said last uh, last episode. What did I say? Well, you were talking about being ready for your blessing. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. You can be blessed and not know what to do with it. Just so telling I'm you, just man. Saying, progress is a it's slow like a, process. It's like a beautiful person with no personality. Nah, we can make it work. <laughs> <laughs> like, how beautiful are we talking about? <laughs> like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we, like, we, like we. Cause when you're beautiful like that, the little things that you do are just like more attractive anyway. Like a really beautiful woman, she farts, you're like, oh, that was so cute, baby. That gets old after a while. No, that's shut up, oh, man. Look, oh, yeah, look at your little fart. That's it. It's putrid. It's good. Yeah. Um it's gotta have personality. The dick has to have personality. The dick has to have personality. Yeah. Rachel Lindsay, you guys, that's a quote. Put that on a T-shirt. The dick has to have personality. <laughs> right. uh, uh, signed by the Meek Messiah. The Meek Messiah. <laughs> I'm telling you, things are different. Things are different. It's a different. It's a new. It's a. We got new people. It's a new world. Um, Club Shay Shay's back. Did it? Did you did watch it? Did it fall off? Did you watch it? I did watch it. Well, first of all, when I say Club Shay Shay's back, I don't mean that Club Shay Shay is back. I mean like. Back it never with felt. The it never fire episode. Yeah, Monique was on Club Shay Shay. You knew that it was going to go up. She talked about a lot of different people, and it was interesting. Shout out to Shannon Sharp and Club Shay Shay. When you hear the introduction from Monique, God damn, Monique has accomplished a lot. Yeah, she has. Yeah, she has. Which goes into her point of why she is where she is now. She's talented in so many different ways as the accomplishments laid out. When you, can I ask you, mm-hmm. when you, and I didn't see the back and forth of what people were saying about the Monique interview, so I'm curious. I just watched it. When you listen, we just had um, Cat Williams and people were like, man, Cat Williams went in on people. And whether you agree with the things he was saying or not, people kept saying, but he doesn't lie. And I don't know what people were saying about Monique, but I, but Monique went in on several people. She went she in, said, a, we should just say, Tiffany Haddish, Kevin Hart, D.L. Hughley. Will Packer. Will Packer. Tyler Perry. Oprah. Oprah. Um... Uh, she talked about the Breakfast Club as well. Charlemagne responded to her, gave her an apology. Um, so yeah, but go she ahead. talked about a lot of people. But I feel like when Monique talks, people don't believe her. It just seems, and I wonder why that is. Because she comes across as believable to me as Cat Williams was coming across as believable. Hmm. What was your take when you watched it? Also, it's very interesting. Like I could listen to the two of them talk. Yeah. I don't think that Monique, I don't think that there's anything that Monique says that's not true. I wonder if every other perspective is being, um, and I, same thing with Kat, 
there's like there's is there's nothing that I think that Monique says that isn't true. Um, I think it would be drastic to call the sister a liar. But I think that when you're talking about things that involve so many interpersonal relationships, the question is like what's not on the page, like what's falling between the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see you doing something and want to tell you about it. The question is, is there a way to tell you about it? Is there a way to go about something? Is what you're doing, does it rise to the level of discourse even? Like the question is uh, not necessarily about whether or not there are problems and gatekeepers in the industry. The The questions are about how the relationships that you've had with those people have informed the things that you say. Um, And so like, it's, it's like with anything else, you say something, for example, the, we'll get into some of this stuff. Do we have Monique on DL Hughley? Do we have that, Donnie? Yeah. Play that. Play. She talked about specifically her back and forth with DL Hughley, and DL responded. Okay. It was a little lengthy, but we're going to play as much of it as you guys can stomach. So play Monique on DL. Here we go. They said, Monique, we want to play a game of would you rather. Let's go. Would you rather your husband sleep with Lee Daniels with a condom or Corinne Steffens without one. Really, Monique? Now, as y'all are watching right now who haven't heard this story, y'all going, they doing the same thing in the studio. They going, okay. That is exactly what happened. Now, I say to the team, how does that uplift our community? Okay, so pause right there. Take this. So, Donnie, stop it. She was really offended about that uh, with that question, right? Would you be offended with that question? No. Would I be offended with that question? No. So that's what I'm talking about. So what I'm talking about is in, and I'm not, I don't have the gravitas that Monique does, right? And I'm not an older black lady and there are different levels of respect. Right. So that's the in-between. That's the, the, the tendons of it, the cartilage of it, like the connective tissue of it. The connective tissue of it is that to a lot of people wouldn't be as injurious as uh, as it was to her. It, that that to a lot of people would be like, even if you have a, it's like, oh, come on, man. Even if you don't want to answer it. Like a lot of people wouldn't have taken that as personally as she seemed to take it. Donnie, continue to learn. You to know your audience. It's true. You do. And they should have known not to like ask her that. Because perhaps, perhaps. Donnie, continue it. I said, sister, and her name is Jasmine. How could you ask another sister that? Well, we just planned. I said, tell me the joke in that because I don't know what you're insinuating. Then you're involving people that have nothing to do with nothing. Like, what are y'all doing? So I said, I'm going to call my brother. I call D.L. Hughley on the phone. I say, hey, baby. Yeah. Huh? That's how he responds. Yeah. Did he know it was you? Yes, he, because they called him to let him know Monique's going to be calling. Right. Like, this, it was getting crazy. Right. I'm like, just let me get on the phone with my brother, right? Yeah. Hey, DL, yeah. I said, listen, I just got off the phone with your team, and they wanted to play this game, would you rather? And it was, like, stupid. Like, asking me about my husband and Lee Daniels and Corinne Steffens and his exact words, well, that's how we do it. I said, DL, how does that uplift our community? And again, I don't know what y'all trying to insinuate, but brother, what you doing? Like I said, that's just how we do it. So it is what it is. So that's her side. 
Mm-hmm. We're not going to get into every single gripe that Monique had. <laughs> all right? But this is what DL had to say. And Donnie, go right to the part where, she, where, because uh, he was pissed. Um, go right to the yeah. part where she, where he talks about that same interaction. She apparently was so offended by that that she says she got off. She called me. Monique did, and she said I was very dismissive, like, huh? Monique's a liar. When Monique did call me, I heard her her complaints. I listened to her, and I pulled the segment. So if I had been as dismissive as she alleges I was, that segment would have aired. It didn't because I respected her wishes. She's a liar. <laughs> It also befuddles the shit out of me how somebody who has a comedian talks as much shit about everybody else as she does. She has the temerity to be offended about anything as much shit as you say about people. So he goes on to say that in their back and forth because they had words about something else that Monique has said a lot of things about his family and all of that stuff like that. Yeah. So I guess my thing is um, I do think that the root of this is that Monique feels and is underappreciated for everything that she's accomplished. And she's been wronged. And she's been wronged. And and it seems like everybody has, everybody who was, this is my brother this, this is my sister this, all the people that she really believed were down for her, she feels turned their back on her when it could put Hollywood over her. And that's really what it comes down to. She tells a story about Kevin Hart. Did we mention Kevin Hart? She tells a mm. story about Kevin Hart. She acknowledges that he gave her money when she didn't have it. So consider that. So, and that's what I'm talking about. Oh, go ahead and finish the story. I don't well, just to that, that he gave her money when she didn't have it. She she let him know he was there for her, wrote her check. She paid him back, but he still was there for her. But he also said, you know, continuing on, like not a one-time thing. If you have, according to her, if you ever need anything, I'm here for you. I'll work with you. I'll do whatever you want to do. I'll partner with you. And then her story is that, when it came down to that, and she went to the network and said, hey, I got Kevin Hart. The network said, hey, we talked to his manager. His manager said he wasn't want to do anything with her. And that seems to be the end of their relationship. So when I say wronged, it seems like people put Hollywood over her because she had a reputation, because some black powerhouses were speaking against her. They didn't want to get caught up in that. And so they pushed her to the side. So I, I she's still to the side. Right. Right now... Who, whoever is blackballing or marginalizing Monique, Monique is delightful in everything that she's in. She's got insane range to me. She can be uh, dramatic. She can be sinister. She can be delightful. She's a top. To me, honestly, honestly, it should be Viola, Octavia Spencer, Monique deserves to be in that category. If not of just straight dramatic actress, of a performer because she can be funny in a way mm-hmm. um, that a lot of performers can't be. And she can also do everything else. She's a do-it-all performer. But even in that story right there, she needed money. He gave her money. Yep. He, like, he gave her money. Kevin Hart was like there for Monique. He mm-hmm. was there for her. Then when it came down to business, there's probably parts of who Monique is or who more people perceive Monique to be that precluded him from being able to do maybe what he would have wanted to do for her. And so I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that anything that she's saying isn't true. What I would be wondering about is why there is like a gigantic conspiracy against Monique. Well, she says it's because two of the t- most powerful people are against her. It's, so it's Rachel, it's Rachel, it's uh it's it's Oprah and Tyler Perry's fault. According to this interview, it is 
Oprah and Tyler Perry. And she says that, I think she kept saying that Tyler Perry admitted it or something. She says she has them on tape. And, and she said that she, Shannon said that he, he heard, heard it, the tape. And he yeah. heard it. And we know that Lee Daniels used to be a part of that and yeah. has come out and apologized. And even they were working on something together. I don't know if that officially came out. She's supposed to be in some movie or something that Lee was doing. So, and then she compares also what was happening with Taraji. She gave a really good analogy where she said, back when that we were on plantations and we were being sold into slavery, that when someone stepped out of line, someone, a black person stepped out of line. They had to break them. They had to break them. And they would say, look what happened to this one. You better not do what they do or the same thing's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. She says that's what happened to her with Oprah and Tyler. And that's why a Taraji had to fall in line. I thought that was a really good comparison because that's exactly what we saw. We saw Taraji be very honest. And then next thing we know, she's writing a letter and sitting down and doing an interview. I need Monique to be free. I need Monique to be exalted, paid, and respected. And if I ever get the chance, if I ever get the chance to to produce something that would be big enough for her to be in, I would love to work with her, all right? I'll say this. This is another reason why and people are really going to dislike me saying this. I'm starting to lean toward class being a bigger issue than race. And it, it when I say that, I don't mean a more sinister issue. Understand what I'm saying? And a lot of people are going to be mad at it. Some people are going to be like, oh my God, that's so obvious. Race is the most, race and racism and sexism um, are the most sinister uh, demons in America, by far. Uh, racism is the entry point to American success. Slavery, things of that nature, the genocide of the uh, of the Native Americans, all of that stuff. Those are the sinister elements that America's built on. And they're still the most pernicious and dangerous and the most um, uh, visceral evils in America. Like, mm-hmm. you see black people, bad. Bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Must kill, must kill, must kill. I'm not. I'm never going to say that anything's going to be with that. But class penetrates uh, even inside of intraracial bonds. There is a gigantic problem with classism and class power within Black people. Yeah, that's true. And the more money that I'm starting to see get thrown into the Black community the more we're starting to see this push-pull between the haves and have-nots that threatens our ability to coalition build inside of Black America. Like, to me, I see Black people that are choosing privilege, money, and power over their Blackness every day. Sure. Every day. And... Whereas race is a strong enough thing to get, race and community is a strong enough thing to get you killed in America. It doesn't seem to be a strong enough thing to build solidarity in America. I see rich rappers choosing their rich lives and their rich friends over the black community that needs them to advocate for them. I see them, there being all types of different, uh, 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 people in these positions like she might be talking about, like Monique might be talking about, I'll name her, like Monique might be talking about, want to hold on to that rather than want to, to, to spread it around. And that's not me agreeing with anything that she said because I don't know these people, mm-hmm. a lot of them. But 
there's got to be an understanding of who we are. And it's class that stops that understanding to me when it's when it's dealing with us. Interesting. It's Listen, true. I it's just and to, to that point with like the Kevin Hart thing specifically, I think she's hurt that you wanted to be her friend in private, but not in public. And it seems mm. that there's a lot of that going on with her. Um also Shannon Sharp is so messy. Do you like the way he conducts his interviews are so funny to me. He'll be like, but why should why she pick up the phone like that? But why'd they say that? Shannon knows she do it. Oh, of course. Yeah, Shannon knows. Just so leading into exactly. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, it's so funny to me how he does his interviews. He's great. Yeah. He's great. Shannon, Shannon, Club Shay Shay has become it's a place where you they go. They say and, the new Wendy Williams. That's what DL said. <laughs> Club Shay Shay is a place where you go and talk your shit. That's you gonna be become? on there? No, I'm not going on there. You gonna do it this year? Oh, it was this part of the playbook. This is part of the playbook. <laughs> this is. This I can't is, tell you how many people wrote me and they were like, "You got to do that playbook." Oh, this is part of the playbook. Part oh, of by the playbook. way, by the way, just to let you know, I went home because I've been on the Vivance hard. I'm just. I went home and I wrote the playbook out. <laughs> It's a mo- it's gonna be a movie. It's gonna be a movie. It's gonna I'm telling you. Um, all right, look, uh, we have an interview with Boy Asher King coming up right now. He is the writer director of once again for the very first time, uh, our brand new movie that premieres next week at the Pan African Film Fest. Okay, very exciting stuff right now. We have a filmmaker in our midst. There's a movie that's coming out. Its premiere is next week at the Pan African Film Festival. It's called Once Again for the Very First Time. I am a producer on this film. Uh, I, I wasn't part of the creation of it. I came in after. But it was created with a lot of love and a, a lot of uh, care. Um, and what do you say? Like a, a lot of feeling by the gentleman sitting across the table from Thank us you. right now. Boy, Asha Keen, uh, who is like, should I call you an, an esteemed Hollywood creative? Depends on the person you're talking about. Okay, before we got started, he told me that he sold his first screenplay at 19. So, yes. 19. Yes, yes. 19. <laughs> 19. And uh, Back he's, in, the, in the old days. He's uh, the director cents. and writer of this movie, but you also know him from films like Fresh, films like, remember the Titans, which I know that you guys have seen, uh, <laughs> wrote films like Now You See Me, The Harder They Fall. Um First of all, how you doing? Welcome to Higher Learning. I'm doing great, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. When you happy hear that you. stuff about your career, the movies that you've made that a lot of people have seen, mm. what does it say to you? How do you feel about that? Well, I've always had a pretty strange career, and it's a strange word, too, right, mm-hmm. for, for making things and, and, and being creative. But the things that I've done that I really care about and that are more reflective of my personality, like once again, for the very first time, mm-hmm. you know, which is very much my vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Are the things that often fewer people see and the things that I've made to kind of keep my hand in and be a professional in business and stuff are often as far away from really how I would normally want to do things as, as possible. And those are the things most people see and that I'm known for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always weird to me because when I make this kind of art, more artsy or whatever you want to call it, that word, but artsy, experimental kind of personal work, people are always like, well, that's some weird shit coming from the guy who made Remember the Titans. And for me, what's so strange about it is like, no, but you don't understand is it's so weird that I made Remember the Titans. (laughs) Like, like that's the weird part, like that I ever did that, you know? 
So I have this kind of strange balance slash imbalance in terms of, of the way I approach work and how I've managed to kind of work it out. Hmm. Wait, can I ask you, if that's the weird part, why did you do that movie? Gotta eat. <laughs> okay, fair enough. No, I mean, you know, like you, it, it, the thing about film, right, mm-hmm. as, as an art form that is great, but is also super frustrating at times, right, is that it takes so much money to make a movie. Even a very, what we'd call a small independent movie mm-hmm. is fuckloads of cash, right? If a movie is $500,000, mm-hmm. that, that's a tiny film but a lot of money for someone to, to shell out, right? Whereas if you're painting or if you're making music or whatever, you just don't need that much stuff in order to make or create, right? So in order to make films and in order to be in film, you kind of have to keep your hand in, in what I would call the more commercial side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why you don't see that many, and it's kind of sadly in a way, in, our, in, in American filmmaking especially, it's like... You'll see that person making that one first film that goes to Sundance and whatever, you know, independent film that gets them some notice or notoriety. But you can't keep making those films because there isn't, uh, you know, there's no money in it, both personally for the artist. You know, you can't live on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there isn't really funding for too much of that. So you kind of end up having to go and jump, you know, jump into this quote-unquote studio system or whatever it is now, right? I don't even know what it is now. It's completely a new thing. We're trying. We're still trying to figure out what it is. I'm, yeah, I have no idea what it is, but that's why. I mean, it's like it's like you know, I I would make films to kind of be a professional mm-hmm. and keep my hand in, and then I would take that money and those resources and make my own films mm-hmm. on the other side of it. So it's interesting. Remember the Titans is such a meaningful movie to so many people. I remember I was in Baton Rouge and me and my man Gino, Rachel knows Gino, uh, me and my man Gino went to see uh, Meet the Falkers or no, it was uh, not Meet the Falkers. It was the first one. What was the first Meet one? The Meet parents. the Parents. It was at, in the theaters at the same time as Remember the Titans. I think it literally came out the same week or something. Right. Oh, wow. So yeah. we went to see Meet the Parents and we were coming out and we saw we saw a friend of ours and he was like, oh man, what'd y'all see? And we was like, oh, we saw uh, Meet the Parents. And he looked at us, he was like, y'all didn't go see Remember the Titans, man? <laughs> and I was like, nah, I didn't see it yet. I'm gonna see it on Sunday, man. Me and my dad going to see it. He was like, yeah, y'all gotta see Remember the Titans, man. Because we gotta see that movie. We gotta support that movie. Every Everybody in the theater was crying in the movie, brought us all together and the whole nine. Y'all gotta see that. Don't that other shit. Don't worry about that shit. That shit will be there. Go see that. And like he, like you know, it was one of Gino's frat brothers. He excoriated us for not having seen it. The movie was very meaningful to a lot of people. It doesn't yeah. seem to be as meaningful to you. Well, I've come to embrace it. Okay, oh. I've come to embrace it. At the time, it was personally challenging for me because, like I'm saying. It's not the aesthetic, like, I never wanted to be a guy made a Disney movie mm-hmm. about sports, okay? Like, it was not my aesthetic. It wasn't really the kind of filmmaker I wanted to be. And instantly, when that movie started to do super well, and it became kind of like, what did you just, oh, you made Remember the Titan? Oh, you just made Remember the Titan. I knew it was over for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew that me being a 
person wanting to do the kind of thing that I wanted to do was actually going to be an even more uphill battle because what I was known for was this thing that isn't really, and look, when you do something like that, you put your heart into it. I mm -hmm. do anyway. I put my heart into it, my technical abilities into it. I try to make sure all the performances are great and that it's heartfelt. And I fought, you know, at the time, Disney, you know, sports movies was like the Mighty Ducks yeah. and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer, who's a super commercial producer, right? And at the time was like the Marvel. The one of the most successful producers of all time. Biggest mm -hmm. producer yeah. of all time. He saw the movie in a more serious way than Disney did. Now, but he had his own style, mm -hmm. which was very slick and very commercial. But he had a more serious view of the movie. And I got there, this like, you know, young kid who just made a couple of indies. And I wanted to give him what he wanted. And I actually was pushing against Disney, who just kept wanting it to be the most basic, like kid-oriented thing and i was pushing also back against jerry who had his particular button pushing way of doing things and i wanted to give it more meat and more emotion and kind of more a little bit more depth and power in the racial aspect um because it's tough to make a movie about racism that's going to be rated pg yeah mm -hmm. and a disney film right that was my biggest challenge was like how do i honor the actual the actual difficulty and the actual depth of this problem while making a Disney movie that's suitable for kids, mm. right? And I had to walk that line the whole way through, you know? Um, you're talking about the 1970s and racism, and you're making a movie where you can't use the N-word, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. right? And you can't show kids taking drugs, mm -hmm. and you can't do this, and you can't do that. And so you're trying to make a movie that has some kind of weight to it, but with your hands tied behind your back in a lot of different ways. Would you have wanted to make an R-rated Remember the Titans? Not necessarily because I knew what it what there was that was never even a shot. I wanted to make a rated PG thirteen rated ah. Remember the Titans, and it had to be rated PG. Right mm -hmm. now, that was hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm talking like that was hard. Okay, um, but anyway, so you know, I I put my heart and my mind into it, and I did my best with it. It's not like when you're doing something that isn't your vibe as a professional that you don't do your best. But yeah, what was hard for me afterwards was that it did so well. Uh -huh. And in a way, I ended up beating myself up for that, um, you know, for years. And now I embrace it. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I, you know what was a high, a high point? Um, uh, the guy who did the score for the film, his name's Trevor Rabin. He's originally from South Africa, Jewish guy from South Africa. Great guitarist. He wrote that song, uh, Owner, Owner of a Lonely Heart. That big, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. big right, big hit when he was with Yes, and he's done a lot of big scores for Bruckheimer and stuff. Great guy. He did the score for Titans, right? That was a score that we both worked hard on and everything. Anyway, it was during the first Obama run for presidency um, against McCain, right? Mm -hmm. And Alma, my then wife and now best friend, and I were in Nevada canvassing for Obama, right? Um, I I still remember when we were invited to some like young Hollywood event for this guy, Barack Obama. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, what the fuck should we go to some black guys? And we're going to be the president. What the fuck? Why should we waste our time over there? Right. And she Didn't like, think it was possible. No. And I, and we, we went there and we went there and, and it was like this ballroom with all these famous people and us, you know, and Obama was like, I don't know, an hour late. <laughs> and then his guy introduced him, his like his hype man introduced him and he came in 
And he was tired and he had just been all day in LA probably giving the same speech. And I remember him, you know, like coming right like this close to me. And I was like, dude, you're crowding my space. Like, like, and I, <laughs> to Barack I, Obama. Like, I, I was like, I, I was like I'm back, backing up. And then he gave that whole, that speech with the, you know, are you fired up and ready to go? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I'm okay. not. Right. Like he just, it was so rote mm-hmm. in a way. It was so rote. Cut to like three months later or something, and we are busting our, I, like, we totally won over, mm-hmm. you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it was like, wait, this is for real? Yeah. Like, this shit is for real? Are you kidding me? So we were, to make a short story long, we mm-hmm. were in Nevada canvassing, you know, nervous as hell, because no one really knew what mm-hmm. was going to happen. And we're in our, our hotel room after a week of canvassing, and the results start to come in, in the hotel, you know, and it becomes clear that this guy is one mm-hmm. and we're like, you know, crying. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we all were. <laughs> and then they, then they show that he gave this huge speech in Chicago. I think mm-hmm. it was on the stage. Right. And there's a huge crowd in a park over there and yep. everything. And they say, you know, Barack Obama, the next president is going to come out. And what music do they start playing? They remember the Titans score. Mm. And I look at Alma and I'm like, that's the Titans score. Yeah. Right. And I just was so proud, mm-hmm. right? And I pick up the phone after the speech, right after the speech. I call up Trevor, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Trev, did you hear that? Mm-hmm. You know, that Obama just, they played the Remember the Titan score, you know? And he goes, do I get paid for that? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, that's a good question to ask. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you two come together and meet? You're working on this film that we're going to talk about in more detail, but... How did you guys meet and come together and start working together? Lawrence, a common friend. Oh, yeah. Lawrence, okay. Lawrence Bender, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would see, it's like Hollywood, the, 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 it's, it's an odd town because everybody has friends, but like they don't care really who their friends are. After a while, they've known these people for a long time. When Trayvon first, uh, Trayvon Free, obviously when Trayvon first told me, he said, look, like, just come over to the house and we'll talk about the stuff that we want to do in our own company. So I'm like, cool. So I, 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 I come to Lawrence's house. Trayvon was living with Lawrence at the time. So I come over to Lawrence's house and Lawrence walks in uh, and he walks into the thing and I look at Trayvon and I'm like, yo, is that Lawrence Bender? <laughs> He's like, yeah. I'm like, Fuck. <laughs> that Lawrence. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't really I had no clue who he was talking about. Like, right. yo, I'm like, yo, is that Lawrence Bender right there? He was, he was like, fuck. And then I'm same thing happened with him. I'm in, Lawrence, I'm in Lawrence's house. It's like, uh, yeah, my friend Boaz is staying up with me. I'm like, I'm like, bro, yeah, that's the that's the fresh guy. I was like, yeah. Lawrence, Lawrence is very generous. And whenever people are in town, like he has a nice big house. Yeah. And we all stay somewhere in that house. Yeah, and um, so I'm like, so, Jesus. So I, I we met after a while, and then um, to get into the movie some months ago, maybe a year ago. Yeah, maybe something like, like a, year a year ago. ago yeah. uh, like Kalika and I were there, and he showed us this this scene from a movie, and it was I was transfixed by it. I was transfixed by just what was happening and how it was going. It made me want to know more about it and 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 how things were going to play out. And we then, were still in editing, right? And that's kind of how my involvement with Boaz and with once again kind of started. Okay. Yeah. So to the film now, 
because I could, if we could get into another conversation about Fresh and all, we, we could talk about the, you guys haven't seen Fresh's masterpiece. To uh, so once again, a couple of questions here. Um, I know a lot of the backstory and the answer to this. Rachel's seen the movie. I've seen the movie. That's right. Okay. Screening. And that's why I just have to say, when you said transfixed, I was in, I was captivated. It was enchanting to watch the movie. So it was interesting to hear you use that word because it was like, whoa. I I I, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give it away. No, no, no. But I just think everything that comes with it, with the dancing and the poetry and this complicated relationship and the title in itself, I find very interesting. I mean, I'll let you keep going because I want to talk about the title and what that means in relate relationship to the movie. But mm-hmm. some of the other films that you write or you've written have very linear storylines. They're they're easy movies if you will. Mm-hmm. Magicians doing things, uh, coming together in the 70s. Even the story of like a young man who is uh, using his chess acumen to free himself of this life that he's gotten himself to. Uh, it's very, very creatively genius written movie, but it's a, it's a linear story that you can find. Sure. This movie is a little bit more, it demands a little bit more of the audience and it's a little bit less linear. How did you even come up with this? What was the genesis for making a movie that uses poetry, prose, and dance and visual expression to tell the story rather than it it being straightforward? Well, as a writer, I have been exploring the idea of a much less linear, dreamlike, fragmented look at life for a while. Just none of the movies got made, right? Mm. Okay, like I've been doing that for a while because I, I feel like the way we experience life isn't linear. Right. Right. We experience life in this kind of combination of like being here, being somewhere else in our minds, in our memories, in the present, in the past. And I feel that this sort of very linear structure of narrative film gives us a pretty limited way of looking at the personal experience. Um, so as a scriptwriter, I've been playing with that for a while, never actually got to make one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last film that I did. I made a film called Aviva mm-hmm. where I was like, every once in a while, I just get to a place where I'm like, if I just have to keep doing the same damn thing over and over, I'm going to jump off a, a cliff. And I was like, I'm going to make my own movie. I made a, a bunch of money that from a movie I'd made in the early 2000s called Uptown Girls that like mm-hmm. 15 years later, I got a check for and I put it right into making this movie, Aviva, right? Mm-hmm. And Aviva is about the male-female imbalance in the self and how it affects relationships right and so what i did was i cast two actors for each character it's about a man and a woman but i cast a man and a woman to play the man and a man and a woman to play the woman and it's four actors playing two people and sometimes the two men are together sometimes the two women are together sometimes all four of them are together and it was really abstract an abstract idea and I felt like I needed something. And I'd been wanting to make a dance film. Mm-hmm. Just a dance. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I was talking to an old friend who was a dancer. And I was like, I want to make this movie about the four people playing two people. Dead, but I don't know the way in. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know the way in. Like, it just. And he was like, make that the dance movie. And I was like, fucking A. That's what I got to <laughs> do. Right? Mm-hmm. And it all started to flow. And it was very personal. It was about my life and my relationship, my marriage. Right? But in this kind of completely... And I found these incredible dancers to work with. Bobby Jean Smith choreographed it and so on. And it was this real international cast of dancers. 
It's a very unique film. Not a lot of people have seen it yet. It also came out during COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. was like, stuff. Yeah. People were only yeah. watching The Tiger King. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like and that, Yellowstone. <laughs> Yellowstone or whatever. Um, but I now had got, you know, and I come from a background, like my parents were mimes. Mm, yeah. Right? Really? And my dad was the head of the movement department at Juilliard for 50 years. I come from a background that deals with theater and mime and... So finally, after years of just making film in a certain way, I started to integrate all this stuff into it. And I loved doing it so much in Aviva, right? Then I had gone through a really, really painful emotional relationship that was extremely painful that I, I really felt I needed to explore. And I felt like I wanted to do something that explored life and art as a battle. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea of battle dancing and battle rap, spoken word poetry, but like it really felt like the two kind of art forms that most epitomized that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I had worked and I, I had worked with Aviva, which is in Aviva with a really m international cast. But I wanted to work with black dancers and performers like I it was mixed in, in Aviva, but I wanted to really work with some people that I had been thinking about and, and, and so on. So I, I wrote it to be in that world more mm. and, and combine the world of contemporary dance with street dance and spoken word poetry with rap and kind of try and create a kind of a dreamlike fusion of the two. So it, it's a product of something I've been thinking about for a while. Mm. Mm. All black cast. Almost all black cast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Once again, for the very first time, why that title and what does that say about the movie? Well, if I can wax philosophical for mm -hmm. a brief moment. Go for it. Um, so I went through a lot of depression in my life, right? And one of the things that creates depression is this feeling that things are the same all the time, right? And, and the concept of even of something cyclical, of repetition, right? We feel the sense of repetition. But the truth is, everything is new all the time. Nothing is ever the same. Time is only going in one direction. Mm -hmm. We never do anything twice. It just feels like that to us, mm -hmm. right? Like when you say, I'm going to do some push-ups. And then the next morning you go, am I going to do push-ups again? Mm -hmm. You're not doing them again. It's brand new. Even if you see, you see a film and you say, I'm going to see that film again, it's the exact same thing. It's not the exact same thing. You're different now. Mm -hmm. Even the film is different if in a minor way that you can't detect. So everything is new all the time. But we struggle to appreciate that. It's the weirdest thing. Like, it, it, just to, I, I don't want to cut your wisdom, but sometimes I crumble under the weight of that concept. Mm -hmm. Like, this day today, this is the only time this day will ever exist in the future, ever. Mm -hmm. This moment will never exist again. It's just such a crushing concept when you really consider it. Like this one day never exists again. It doesn't come back. It feels like it does, but it doesn't. It's, it's, it's so true. Yeah. And, and even the, the word repetition, that it's not an accurate word. There's no such thing as repetition. We may feel a sense of repetition, but every time the sun rises, it's rising for the very first time. Mm -hmm. We're used to it. We think it's, it's not the same. So for me, the title, once again, for the very first time, is about what the, mo the movie is about, 
having to rediscover yourself as a person all the time, reinvent yourself as a person all the time, as an artist, motivate yourself to do things again when you're tired and things haven't worked out as epitomized by this relationship that's painful and destructive, but also has its inspirational aspect, but is also toxic in a way. Um, and the question of the film is like, should this relationship be started again or not? Right. Um, cause there's no story in the film. That's the only thing driving yeah. the film. Right. So I wanted the, the title of the movie to reflect that feeling of like, God, we got to do this once again. Right. I got to get up again. I've got to make it do another podcast. I've got to create something new. I got to write something again. I have to start a new relationship, but it's really always for the very first time. Mm. Mm. Right. Um, it's, and if we can remind ourselves of that, of that, it's incredibly helpful. Right. And I think that as people, we need to balance that because it's useful to remember things. We need to remember things. It's part of our survival mechanism, right? Like if you do something and train yourself to do it well, it's important to remember that training, whatever it is, right? That's part of us. But at the same time, we get in a rut, mm -hmm. right? We get in a rut. So that balance of appreciating the feeling of repetition of doing things and all that, and of reminding ourselves and keeping ourselves with like, you know, what the Buddhists call beginner's mind, where we're always beginning again, where we always are learning, where we never really know anything. I think that's the balance. And I wanted the movie to reflect that. Oof, that was a, that's a positive outlook. Absolutely. How did you come by the leads? We have uh, Mecca and Jerobam, um and an incredibly talented uh, dancer, Juilliard-trained dancer, right? No, Jerobaum came through... through um, Alvin Ailey. Alvin Ailey. He Alvin is still Ailey. the lead of the Alvin Ailey dance company. The lead of the Alvin Ailey company. And then Mecca, this amazingly powerful uh, black lady poet from Baltimore. From Baltimore, yeah, spoken word spoken poet, word from, poet Baltimore. from Baltimore. How did you come by them? And, and what was the decision to cast unknown actors about? Well, you know... It's a it's a, a low budget film. Okay. Super low budget film, right? So you're not going for famous actors. And also the thing is I found with Aviva and this, when I make a movie about dance, dancers have to be a motherfucker, right? Yeah. And actors aren't. They used to be, <laughs> yeah. right? Back in the Nicholas Brother, Fred Astaire, Gene mm -hmm. Kelly days. But these days dancers are dancers and actors are actors. And I want to make films with the best dancers in the world, right? So they tend not to be famous actors. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, the first person that we brought on was the choreographer, who was Rennie Harris, who's like a legendary hip-hop dancer from mm -hmm. the 80s and, and 90s. He danced like, you know, with Run DMC when they were first doing their concerts and stuff. And and But he also transitioned into choreographing for Alvin Ailey, and he has his own company. And so he has this combo that I wanted the movie to have, which is from the streets, but also Alvin Ailey mm -hmm. and contemporary, like this kind of balance. And he had worked with Jerobaum before. And he was like, I think I have your guy. Wow. You know, I think I have your guy. And when I saw what Jerobaum could do, the combination of training and ability to work in, in, in another uh, idiom, I knew he was the guy. Right. And Mecca, Hillary Stab, who, 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 uh, who is uh, one of our co-producers, you know, she just was tied into the spoken word poetry world. And I was looking at actresses and Mecca sent in. She said, I think I know this great spoken word 
poet. She goes by Mechamorphosis. Mm -hmm. and she does mm -hmm. spoken word poetry. And I watched a couple of her clips on, on YouTube. And I was just like, this young lady is fire. I don't know if, you, if you've seen any of her clips on YouTube, but yeah. she is just full of emotion. She's one of those people that like everything they feel, you can just see it on their skin. Mm -hmm. Like there's no filter. And I was like, wow. So, and she had never acted in a film before. She'd done some, some smaller things and she auditioned. And I, I just knew, like, you know, when you just know it, you don't always, but I knew it when I saw her. And I think she gives one of the best first time performances that you could have. She's amazing. Yeah. It's so interesting. You talk about like her and her, her art and how you can feel it, but that's how you felt watching the movie. I could feel them communicating through their dance. I could feel them communicating through, when, they, when they, even when they dance together or um, when she's doing her spoken word, this film obviously centers around this relationship. What, what do you want, I guess, the audience to get from this relationship and the way they communicate? Because the way they communicate through their art to one another, that's speaking to one another too. What does, in the way that you put that together, like what do you want the audience to receive from that? What does that say about the way that they're able to communicate through this movie? I'm not going to be evasive about this, but I will say that part of the reason that I wanted it to be portrayed through dance and movement and all that is because there aren't words exactly for necessarily what I wanted that to feel like because it needed to be expressed in a physical way rather than a verbal one. But if I have to put words to it, it is how relationships can be both destructive and inspiring at the same time mm. and at what point is that something that needs to be moved past or moved through yeah, point or can it be or can it be salvaged or, yeah. or you know at what point has that relationship served its purpose and at what point does it become just destructive so to speak you know and i think that's like that's the question of the movie mm -hmm. somehow you know yeah i'm not gonna give anything away but it doesn't end like you think that it would and you don't feel any the worse for it. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this. It's a challenging movie. Yes, it is. And... I, what do you mean? It's a challenging film. You mean to comprehend? I mean, you, you have to surrender to it, right? A hundred percent. How do you feel, um, and our audience is, loves a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how do you feel when people don't get it? Look, I, I go into something like this knowing, it, you know, and also saying that they don't get it. Like, I mean, I, I don't want to judge. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't want to judge because it's such a personal kind of an experience when you watch a movie, right? Like some people are going to connect to it and some people aren't. And I go into something like this knowing it's not something easy that a lot of people are going to connect to. Mm -hmm. You know, when I do something like this, my approach is, not a lot of people necessarily are going to connect to it, but the people that Who are going to connect yeah. to it yeah, 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 are going to connect sure. to it deeply. Mm -hmm. And that's who I'm making the movie for. I mean, to me, that's the difference between approaches to art or creativity in general, right? Very rarely is something that's like meant for truly deep feeling. Once in a blue moon, let something amazingly alchemical happens, and it's also very popular, mm -hmm. right? But I feel there's this approach of like, how do we do something that's got some quality that can affect people, but it's affect people a certain amount, but for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do I do something that when it hits, 
it's going to hit the people that it hits in a way that could be somewhat life-changing. Mm-hmm. How they approach their work, how they approach their feelings, how they approach a relationship, it will really resonate, right? And it won't affect a lot of people in that same way. I mean, I, I and that's when I'm doing something like this, what I'm trying to do. I, I remember when I saw the filmmaker that influenced me the most and, and got me to want to make films was the Japanese filmmaker, Akira Kurosawa, right? Yeah. Influenced a lot of people. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was in, you know, and he's famous mostly for his samurai films yeah. with Toshiro Mifune and all that. But his first color film that he made after a lot of those famous films um, was a film called Dodes Kaden. And it's about a bunch of people basically living in a garbage dump in Japan. And it's all their various stories, these tragic, funny stories. It's kind of like surrounding device is a, a developmentally challenged kid who thinks he's driving a trolley train. Mm-hmm. Through, through, and that's why the sound he makes gives it this title. And it has mime elements and surrealistic elements. And it's such an astoundingly beautiful film, right? When it came out, no one went and saw it. Kurosawa tried to commit suicide. He had a suicide attempt at age 60, I don't know. After the career to end all careers as a filmmaker, it hurt him so badly that no one went to see this film, right? And he made a few after that he had this big comeback with Iran and, yeah, and yeah, Kagamusha, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's my favorite Kurosawa film. And I remember seeing that when I was 17 years old in high school. And I couldn't talk. Things don't affect me that way anymore. You know, the way you are when you're a kid and you right. see things. With her. I couldn't talk. And I went to my bed and I just lay looking at the wall mm-hmm. for like an hour. And partially I was like, I'll never be able to make something like that. And partially it was like, if I ever do anything good, it's because I'm trying to do what he did here, right? And that movie has stayed with me his whole, my whole life. I, I don't necessarily think about it all the time or whatever, but that and a few things that I've seen, Ralph Bakshi's Coonskin, mm-hmm. blew my brains out when I first saw it, right? Blew my brains out. That's something I've always tried to meet in a way, right? Um, those movies changed my life. They made me a different person. They, they made me want to make work in a different kind of a way. And those movies were not big hits, you know? So I see a kind of a binary in it. Mm. Although, you know, look, I've seen Jaws 10 million times. <laughs> I love it. If it right. comes on TV, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. The John Williams music on that is the best thing I've ever heard, you know? I, I've seen it a thousand times more than I've seen Dodeska then, which mm-hmm. I've seen five, six, seven, you know, I don't know. Jaws, I've probably seen literally a hundred times, right? But which one is the more profound experience? You know, they both have a place in our lives, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. But for me, my preference is to focus on that. Mm. I guess that would lead into my last question of where you would go from here after making a film like this. You said that when you wrote this film, you were in an emotional place with the relationship. You went away from the linear story, which I love, and it's more reflective of what we go through in life. And I think maybe that's why I felt this movie so much because I did surrender to it and I was in a place to receive it. Where do you go from here? Do you want to continue to, maybe you'll do both. Maybe you will stay in this space or, you know. I I would love to stay in this space, but you can't. (laughs) You can't because you have to, you know, you have to put the bacon on the table or whatever the expression is, right? Right. Like, you know, 
Um, so you, it, it sucks because I, I, I've spent so much of my life doing things mm-hmm. that I would rather not be doing while doing much prefer to keep doing that. Um, but you do tend to have to kind of go back and forth. So I think it's going to have to remain a balance of some kind, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I tell you what, uh, I would say from the three that I've read, Boaz is in the unproduced screenplay hall of fame. I wish I wasn't, but we're talking, <laughs> I wish I was in the produced screenplay we're, hall we're of fame. We're talking some insane work. Like, to like top-notch, insane work. How much do you write? What's the percentage of screenplays that you've written that, you, that have been produced? Could you think about that number? Is there like... Well, I mean, in terms of, you know, I've also done rewrites for things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I've yeah, also, yeah. you know, like, so I have, a, like, I've been doing this since I was 19, like I said. So we're talking about 37 years of screenwriting, right? Mm-hmm. Or something. So there's a lot of scripts that I've done. But in terms of scripts that I've written that are produced percentage, it's probably like, you know, 5%. Mm. 10, 10% maybe. That have been produced. Yeah, that oh, have been wow. produced. And probably like 90%, maybe 90% that haven't. Yeah. So for screenwriters that are coming up <laughs> that hear that. <laughs> and by the way, you know what the crazy thing is? Like, I think the, the guy's a fucking genius. Like he, like he, and, and, and so for, for, describe that life. Like describe that, like, or is that because you're so prolific as a screenwriter or is that the reality? No, that's, of- I mean, look, there are a few people out there and it's a real, look, I'm one of the lucky ones, so to speak, who actually has made a living mm-hmm. in this industry sure. for the last decades and made a few films that I like and care about and, and that I think represent my you know, my aesthetic or, or my, you know, feelings, et cetera. A few, three, four, you know, in 30, over 30 years of filmmaking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a handful of people whose personal desires and styles mesh with an audience's appreciation, mm. right? So you get like the Coen brothers, uh, P.T. Anderson, Quentin, Spike Lee, some of the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he has to do one for them too, right? Mm-hmm. The handful of people who actually, what they like to do is what people like to give you money for. Mm -hmm. You can count that on one hand, right? In Europe, you have sometimes a few more people, but here on on one hand, the rest of us are trying to find ways to like stay in the game. To game the system To stay in the game and and once in a while do something for us and once, you know, and and stay, it's it's like so much staying in the game time. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're spending percentage-wise 99% of your life not doing shit you want to do and 1% of your life where you're like, okay, I'm fucking doing what I want to mm-hmm. do. And I've learned to appreciate those moments, like making once again with this in- incredible cast of dancers and poets. And you're like, this month that we're shooting, it's a one month of shooting, right? A month and a half of shooting. You're like, this is a blessing. You feel at home. Mm-hmm. This is a blessing yeah. because it doesn't happen very often, yeah. right? Um so for young screenwriters and stuff, look, I mean, there are people who want to write commercial films and Marvel movies or whatever and that, and God bless them. And I hope that they succeed in that. And then I think the thing that they like to do is something that they will spend more time doing, mm. right? Like, but for people, you know, again, like with a book, if you're going to write a book, it doesn't even have to be published, but you've written the fucking book. Mm-hmm. 
and someday maybe someone will publish it. You know right. what I mean? If you write that one book that people sell, do buy, and then the publisher goes, you have anything else? Why? Well, I have this. Mm-hmm. Screenplays are just blueprints for a movie, right? Mm-hmm. So with it, you can write a screenplay, even for a low budget, you know, unless you get some stars attached and blah, 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 and $5 million, $2 million, three, that thing is just sitting on your, se- on your shelf mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. So I would say that for screenwriters, for filmmakers, we all have our own path, right? But that you have to be prepared for doing a lot of work that's never going to see the light of day. And also spending an inordinate amount of time that sometimes doesn't even feel like it's worth it on the one thing that does happen. Mm. You know? Like, I hate, sometimes you'll watch, I never watch those award shows and shit. I haven't watched (laughs) the Oscars in 20 years or whatever, right? But people will say, this movie took 20 years to make or 10 years and finally it's seen the light of day, you know, and da-da-da, I'm so happy. And I'm like, that had to take 10 years of somebody's life. It, it ain't worth it. Like, <laughs> like, okay, you got some awards after 10 fucking years. You should have been doing 30 things over 10 years. You yeah. know what I mean? In this business, sometimes it's that one thing that takes years. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? That's up to the person to decide. You know, I often feel it isn't. Mm. Let's talk about next week. So next week, we have the American premiere, because we were already at Talon. That's right. That, the East, uh, that, that was the European premiere. European premiere of the movie already We at won Talon. the Audience Award. Won the Audience Award at the Talon Film Festival. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and we are in the Pan-African Film Festival. We premiere next Tuesday. At four o'clock. At four o'clock, um, <laughs> and on Valentine's Day. On Valentine's, the next day at uh, five. Yeah. The next day. Now, interesting thing about the Pan African Film Festival is you can buy tickets to come see the movie. Absolutely. So if anybody, uh, this will go up Friday. I'll be posting every day, <laughs> multiple times I'll a day. I'll be posting. Yeah, until um, uh, for anyone who's LA local, uh, un- until we premiere. We want to have big crowds at both of the screenings and we want to get as many people out to see the movie as possible. Um, we will have Jerobam and Mecca in uh, in attendance. So if you want to meet the leads and talk to people, there's going to be a lot of press there. Pan-African Film Festival uh, is here in Los Angeles. There's going to be more details to come. Um, we will all be there. Also, uh, Mecca just DM'd me yesterday that she is actually doing poetry here in LA while she's here. I think the very on Tuesday night, I on think. On Tuesday night. So I want to uh shout out her because she told me um here it is. February the 13th um 544 North Fairfax uh California um she is doing an open mic called The Poetry Lounge. She's putting together a list. So everybody if you want to see Mecca and she's just amazing. If you mm-hmm. want to see Mecca in person, she'll be there. Uh, she didn't tell me to do this. And I don't know if it's okay if I'm doing it, but I want the room overflowing for her poetry. 8.30, February 13th, 554 North Fairfax. I think that's the dime. I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think that might be the dime. But uh, our movie's premiering, and then we're working tireless, tirelessly to make sure that everybody who wants to experience the movie can experience. There's still a lot of uh, Hollywood business stuff that we have to get accomplished. 
But the momentum behind the film is fantastic. And I'll tell you one thing right now. I've never met a more delightful, committed, uh, and engaged group of people to be around. Um, everyone that was involved with the film, uh, from our partners in New York, mm. uh, Nicholas and John, everyone that's been involved in this movie has just been a pleasure to, to work with. Nick May, of course, my partner, Nick May, of course. Yeah, it's been awesome having you guys with us, too. It's so. fun to be a part of the yeah. family. And so that's next Tuesday and next Wednesday. More details to come directly. You guys, the Pan-African Film Fest is a lot of fun. It would be amazing if everyone that can comes out. I know we have a lot of thought words here in L.A. Comes out to hang out with You'll us. You'll be at both? I'll be at both. I'll be at one of them. You're, you're coming on Tuesday. It, is that the day I'm coming? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I want you at the premiere. Okay, Tuesday. Yeah. I was like, you know what? Whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, man. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's no such problem. a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, here and I hope I didn't talk your ear off. No, 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 no. Thank you. Um, I think you're gonna be hearing a lot more from me and Boaz in the future, and you're gonna hear a lot more of of Boaz on podcasts and interviews because I'm about to work his ass off over the next six to eight weeks. I'm ready. <laughs> All right, it's great. Thank, Thank you so you. much for joining us. On Thank Highland, you, man. Absolutely. All right, that was great. Love Boaz. So good, so good. So excited for you guys both next week. Happy to support. Hope everybody else comes out and support. We will be there. Come say hello. All of that. Donnie, we're going to do one mailbag question. One. Mailbag time. Time to read your letters and then we'll reply to them. Oh, it's mailbag time. Write us with your queries and we'll chime in. The one mailbag question is Super Bowl related. From the key next door, Van and Rachel, what are your go-to food options for the Super Bowl party? What a great question. Yeah, because we're doing a Super Bowl party, Higher Learning. At and Rachel's, at Rachel's house. Boys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Higher Learning Midnight Boys. What's going to be on the menu? <laughs> Wings, always. Wings, always. Barbecue. Okay. Then you got to have some sides. You're not going to have big slabs of pork out there, are you? No, I'm going to have brisket. Okay, cool. I'm going to have brisket. Brisket is pork, though, isn't it? Beef. I think it's beef. Brisket. Oh, brisket is beef. I'm going to have beef brisket. Yeah. I'll have some sides to go along with it. Right. And then, you know, I told everybody, bring your favorite drink. Mm-hmm. I'll have the food. I'll have the chips. Kalika told me she might be making a salsa. I'll have a fruit salad, a real salad. Maybe have some crumble cookies. Okay. I need Jomi to pop in real quick before we go. Jomi, pop in. No, 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 no. Not Jomi, because Jomi's not coming. Not only did Jomi not respond to my message. So, so, so here's what happened, right? Let me, let you want to clear the air. Jomi's not coming to, to, to Super Bowl. I, I am not. Um, this is a, a Deteron family thing on Sunday, you know, Super Bowl Sunday. I go ahead, I go in the kitchen and I lock in and uh, <laughs> me and my family enjoy. I am sorry for respond, not responding to your message. I was at the gym. I was like, let me let me lock in on this set real quick. And then, you know, Tom just got away from me, you know. Charles did. Awesome. Steve did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 My bad. That's on me. I will take full responsibility, Rachel. Sad. I am sorry Sad. for not responding to your message. Jonah's actually uh, very known for doing this. All right. Well, so see thank what, you, Alea. So why, why would you do that to me? Why would you like put me on blast? All right. We got to go. Look, I'll tell you this. Jomi, when, when I asked Jomi about why they do the Super Bowl at his house, Jomi says so they could feel more American. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. So this I is believe very that's important. exactly why they do it. This is very important. Um, I'm FBA. Oh. I don't, you know, I don't need to feel 
You know what I'm saying? I'm FBA, baby. I don't, I don't need to feel more American. My people built this shit. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to I'm gonna bring Tanique, Tariq Nasheed in here for you, Joan. Um, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Everybody's going to be mad about that. Look, uh, <laughs> tell you things caps off, but do not stop learning. I am Van Lathan Jr. Just to let you guys know, we do have topics already in the can for Monday. We got to talk about Biden. We got to talk about the Borderville. And we have to talk about one very, I can tell you what the big deal of the day is right now. Joe Biden and the Democrats tweeted what Biden's accomplishments for black America are. Mm-hmm. Unless Drake leaks his balls, that is the going to that be... The fact that that took priority shows where we are. That's, that's where we are. That's where we are as a country. <laughs> Had a lot of bullshit to talk about. And a lot of stuff like... We had a lot of heavy topics. This ended up being a lighter podcast. Yeah, we but. had to do it. We had to come back. We're having fun. Uh, we are going to do that. That's the big deal of the day on Monday. Uh, take things off. Do not stop learning. I'm Van Lathan Jr. I'm Rachel and Lindsay. Bye, guys.